Tēnā koutou no mai haere mai. Good morning and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jack Tame. There are new restrictions to prevent coronavirus taking hold. But is New Zealand moving fast enough to outrun the worst outcome for public health? As yet, in two instances, no link to overseas travel has been ascertained and we continue to investigate. So, at this point, we cannot rule out a risk of community transmission in these cases. We're dedicating our show to coverage of COVID-19 again today. Finance Minister Grant Robertson is here live, plus the World Health Organization's COVID-19 expert joins us from France. The head of Kiwi Bank is with us with advice for people worried about their homes. And we'll look back in history to times when New Zealand has been tested and toughed it out. To be honest, I think people are better equipped than they were 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, in terms of psychological tools. I think one thing this crisis has done is demonstrated that nation states do still have some power. The international impact of COVID-19 continues to worsen. Italy has recorded its highest single-day toll, with the coronavirus having now killed almost 5,000 people in that country alone. As per the Ministry of Health, New Zealand has 52 confirmed cases of COVID-19. And to convey the gravity of the situation here, Jacinda Ardern addressed the nation from her office on the ninth floor of the Beehive. We may not have experienced anything like this in our lifetimes, but we know how to rally and we know how to look after one another. The government has now introduced four national alert levels as health officials track COVID-19. Level one is prepare, Level two is reduced. That's where we are now, so the disease is contained, but there is still risk of community outbreak. Level three is restrict. Any geographical areas with outbreaks would be closed down. That could be just part of the country. And level four is eliminate, in which case we'd have to stay home, stay out of school. It's effectively a total national shutdown. This morning then we are at level two, so those of us who can work at home should work from home. And if you don't need to travel within New Zealand, stay put. Anyone over 70 should stay home as well. Joining us from Pōneke, from Wellington this morning is Finance Minister Grant Robertson. Tēnā koe, thank you for your time. Kia ora, Jack. Ashley Bloomfield and the Ministry of Health can't rule out community transmission. If the point of this is to get ahead of the curve, why not move now and shut down schools and shut down businesses? Well, we are operating on the advice of, of Ashley and his team at the Ministry of Health. They believe we are at level two. As you noted yourself in the introduction, Jack, that includes a number of increased restrictions around movement for those over 70 and so on. What we're trying to do here is be able to move with the scientific advice on how to create, as I think the Prime Minister said yesterday, us as a wave country rather than a spike one. And so therefore we will be prepared to move quickly through these levels as the advice Evolves. But what are, what are your advisors telling you? Why not err on the on the side of caution here? Given we have two cases that may indicate community spread. And look, as soon as we get a full understanding of those cases, we will be prepared to move. But why not before that? Because the advice we've got is we have to be able to sustain this kind of approach. This is not a matter of weeks, Jack. You know, I've heard people saying, why don't you shut the country down for a couple of weeks? In reality, we're talking about many months of needing to manage this virus. We now have a clear framework that I think all New Zealanders are able to understand, and they need to be assured we will move rapidly through that framework as the advice changes. There are public health officials, people like Professor Michael Baker, who think New Zealand should ramp up restrictions now. I appreciate this is a marathon, this isn't a sprint, 
but given we have the first two cases that may indicate community spread, surely this is the time to ramp things up. But as you say, if you look at exactly what you read out, you know, we are in phase two where the risks of community transmission are growing. If we believe that we have community transmission, of course we move through the next two phases. So if later today, Ashley Bloomfield and the Ministry of Health update New Zealanders and say there is no indication that these are not community spread cases, these two cases we're discussing, does that mean we go to level three? As I said, we would move quickly through the phases on the range of on the focus of the advice that we're getting. Um, we are in the phase where we believe there are risks of community transmission. That's level two. We meet every single day, uh, Jack, to be able to make sure we can move quickly, make sure that we've got ourselves prepared for those phases. And what I would say to New Zealanders watching is that quite clearly it's in all of our individual power to take actions to make sure that we limit the spread of this virus. That happens regardless of what exact level we're at, but we will respond quickly to the advice that we get. You have some high-profile members of the business community, people who are concerned with the economic impact this is having, uh, people the likes of Sam Morgan, uh, Nick Mowbray, who think you should be shutting New Zealand down right now. What do you say to them? Well, I was actually speaking to Sam Morgan myself last night, and I actually want to thank him and a number of other people for the work they're doing and, th and you know how they can support us to ensure things like the supplies of ventilators and making sure that we've got good quality health information going out. I absolutely respect that there are some people who think that we should have already moved to what is effectively level four. We have to make sure we do this on the basis of advice and we have to make sure that we do it in a way that we can sustain it over a number of months. So we're going to keep talking to the likes of Sam and others and make sure that we all kind of stay on the same page on this. Is that commentary helpful? Oh, look, you know, people have their views and that's up to them. What I'm saying is we continue to operate on advice from the likes of Dr Ashley Bloomfield who worked for the WHO. You know, we have people like Juliet Gerard, the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, who's connected to science advisors all around the world. We can manage this, Jack. We can do as well as New Zealand can possibly do if all New Zealanders take the actions individually and we will respond quickly to the advice we get. You have recommended that New Zealanders avoid domestic travel unless absolutely necessary. How will that affect Air New Zealand? Well, obviously significantly. And Air New Zealand, as you know, on Friday we put in place a package that will enable it to continue to operate. We do need a national airline in a time of crisis like this, but quite clearly um, levels of travel will now be reducing you know, enormously. Um, that's why we put in place the package we did on Friday to ensure they're still here. Will, New, uh, will Air New Zealand survive this crisis? I, you know, I'm confident they will, but I think every airline in the world will look different to what it has in the past. And from our perspective, as the majority shareholder, we want to you know, keep them, stabilise them for now, and then in three, six, nine months, we'll probably have a better idea of what airlines will look like. But for a country like New Zealand, I think it's pretty obvious to everybody, given you know, where we are in the world, um, the kind of country we are, we need that national airline. Uh, we've secured its future and we'll continue to work with it. Are you prepared to take a bigger role or a bigger share in, in securing its future? One of the things about the deal that we did on Friday is that the loan arrangement we have can be converted into equity, can be converted into mm. shares at the request of the Crown, and so that facility is available to us. Um, and I've got confidence in the, in the governing board and, and the management of Air New Zealand because what's happened here isn't anything to do with them not running the company well. It's an external force that's caused this to happen to them. But we're going to be working with them day by day, and I think you would have seen around the 
the world, the massive impact on airlines. Uh, so, you know, we're actually in a good position in the sense that we own more than half of it. You announced on Tuesday that $12.1 billion emergency economic package. What will be your next focus in economic recovery? Oh, look, it's a day-by-day -day thing in many ways, Jack, but obviously as we're moving through to level two now, we've got more businesses who are affected by, by things shutting down in their community and the prospect of going further. So we've got to continue to look out for the same approach we, we took on Tuesday, which is about how to keep people attached to their employers, allow businesses to make adjustments. Um, so we're looking at that. I'm also looking at um, large and complex businesses in New Zealand, ones that are perhaps responsible for infrastructure, making sure we can do case-by-case case and tailored packages for them as well. And then, you know, one of my jobs is to look beyond just the next 12 weeks mm. to what kind of approach we can take. If we do end up in a situation where we're moving up and down these levels for a number of months, what does that mean for people's incomes? What does that mean for the way in which we go about our daily lives? So I'm doing both short-term work and medium-term work. I did say on Tuesday, Jack, I know you were there, that I reserve the right to move before the budget again and clearly things are moving very fast. Does that mean you will be moving before the budget again? I think you can expect more announcements from us around economic responses in the coming days, yes. What businesses feel like they've missed out from Tuesday's package? Look, you know, I've certainly heard from some, some medium and large scale businesses who say that, that while there were good things in the package around tax and so on and, you know, relieving them of some of those burdens, that they, they continue to want to employ their staff mm. and the, the wage subsidy scheme doesn't give them quite enough money to do that. We've been talking to the banks, and I know you'll be talking to Kiwi Bank um, Chief Executive Steve Jerkovic shortly about what they can do and about how we can support them to ensure they, you know, get money out the door. What are your expectations of the big banks? Yeah, look, I, I'm really hopeful that the banks in New Zealand will look across the Tasman to the, the template that's over there um, that really is about banks and government working together to make sure that customers can make it through this. Um, it's in the interest of all the banks to have customers that come out the other side and can carry on. And that's, so that's I do think a government guarantee system, just for our viewers who aren't aware of the Australian program. Yeah, so the Australian banks themselves are moving and they're also talking to the government about moving together. And, and I think that's clearly the template for us. And look, we're in active discussions um, over this weekend with the banks, and I'm, I'm very hopeful you'll see the banks move very quickly. Uh, US federal officials have announced a nationwide ban on mortgage foreclosures in the US. Is that something you would consider or you even have power to implement? <laughs> yeah, look, again, that's part of that conversation between us, the banks, and the Reserve Bank. Obviously, you know, the situation in the States has advanced upon where we are in New Zealand, but we clearly need, need a high level of coordination and collaboration in the financial system. I've been talking to the Reserve Bank Governor just about every day and you know they're in a position now where they you know, are able to ensure liquidity is going into the financial system. The banks themselves have strong balance sheets but actually you know, <laughs> it's pretty difficult to take anything off the table at the moment, Jack. We've heard so much doom and gloom. What is the best case scenario for the New Zealand economy? Look, you know, we've got really good fundamentals in the economy. And for example, we're a food producer and everybody needs food. And so New Zealand continues to have food exporters out there sending food around the world. Um, we continue to be a very innovative country that can come up with solutions quickly. So, you know, there are lots of things here where New Zealand um, businesses, companies, employees will be able to contribute really well. But nobody in the world, I think, can shy away from the fact that we have huge disruption to the global economy for many months to come. We've got to continue to move and deal with short-term issues whilst planning for that longer term. 
as sport minister, do you think New Zealand sports fans should prepare for the Olympics to be cancelled? Look, that is a decision for the International Olympic Committee to make and, and I'm not um, in a position to comment one way or the other on whether that will happen. I think around the world you're seeing major sporting events cancelled and obviously the Olympics requires a significant amount of travel um, and with all of the travel restrictions on, they're going to take significant time to come off. So I'm sure the IOC will be bearing all of that in mind. I saw overnight some of the big US uh, Olympic sport bodies calling for the for the um, Olympics to be delayed. That'll no doubt also be factoring into the IOC's considerations. Grant Robertson, tēnā thank you for your time. Kia ora, Jack. Some public health officials say New Zealand still needs to be testing more people and needs to be stricter in closing down businesses and schools. But would that be too extreme at the moment? A short time ago, I spoke with Dr Margaret Harris from the World Health Organisation, and I began by asking what steps New Zealand should be taking now. You're at an early-ish stage of your outbreak, but you're at a very important point where you do have the potential for spread within the community. So this is a time when you really want to identify every case. You want to be able to test anybody who may potentially have the virus. You want to identify everyone who's been exposed to those people with confirmed cases, and you want to make sure they're isolated. You want to monitor them very carefully. So at this stage, you really want to know where the virus is. You want to be able to track it so that you can really shut it down. Should we be closing schools and businesses? So these measures are what we call social distancing, or that we've actually changed the word to physical distancing because there's nothing social about it. It's basically antisocial. But those measures are taken to enable people to limit their, their contact, their physical contact. So when you get to a stage when you do have a lot of spread, this makes sense because people really don't believe it's a serious matter until mm. it gets too serious. So as we've seen in Europe, you know, it's it ain't real until it's really real. And and other countries that have had experience of this kind of virus, especially the countries that had experience of SARS, like Singapore, did take social distancing measures early, but they didn't they did close schools, but they didn't close businesses. What they did do was really ask their citizens not to be within six feet of each other. There is some disagreement amongst public health experts in New Zealand as to whether or not we are acting quickly enough at the moment. With two potential community spread cases, should we be taking further measures? Should we be closing schools and closing businesses? This really is a decision for the authorities to understand your community because as we've seen in Europe, this, these sort of measures are put in place for the long term once you put them in place. So you have to decide what's going to be acceptable to com your community and how you can make it work. So the important thing is to have planned already how you're going to do that. If you're going to close schools, how are the children going to be educated? In Sierra Leone, for instance, during their huge Ebola outbreak, the, close were school, uh, the schools were closed for a year, and we haven't seen the end of this. We've seen, we don't, haven't seen where the end of this will be. We've seen in China they've man they're managing to slowly get back, and they've managed to do that in eight weeks. But it's not clear whether that will happen in every society. We talk about flattening the curve. Is it really possible to stop community spread with COVID-19? Yes, China has shown it and Korea has shown it. Both of them had 
horrendous outbreaks. China particularly, 80,000 cases. And early on, their cases were just going up in a straight line. And that's why we talk about this flattening the curve, because it was going up into this straight line like this. Um, and we want to see it slowed and turned into more of a plateau. And the reason we want that plateau is no country, no health system, no matter how good and how strong, can deal with the number of people who will have severe cases because they require intensive care. They require, often they require oxygenation at least, but usually ventilation for at least three weeks. And you can imagine, you've got a large number of people on ventilators mm. that hospitals fall, what happens to the next people who come along? So that's why once you've got it in your community, you really, really need to slow it down to give your healthcare workers a chance to be able to deal with the surge. Globally, where would you assess we are with the pandemic? You're still in an early stage and you've still got a very, very good chance of really stopping and slowing it if you do this rigorous work. And You've got a lot of advantages because you're an island. You're, a, I'm not saying you're tiny, but you're mm. small enough to be able to know where everybody is, know where your community is. You've got strong leadership. You've got some of the best public health minds in the world. Every time we have an advisory group, there's always a Kiwi on our panels. You know, you've got brilliant people. And I think you also have excellent communications. And this is a time where every person in the country needs to understand what they have to do and to be willing to do it. Are there other countries or regions that you are concerned will be especially uh, impacted by COVID-19 that perhaps haven't seen the worst of this outbreak yet? We're certainly very concerned about Africa because there are many countries with very weak health systems and it will be very difficult for people to socially distance. Much of Africa has moved from being an, a rural population to very much urban populations. There's been enormous urbanisation in Africa and at the same time there are serious um, debilitating diseases in many populations like tuberculosis and HIV. So we know that where you've got underlying conditions you're more likely to have severe illness. So we are very concerned about any outbreaks that, that, that develop in Africa. Long term, globally, how is this going to play out? <laughs> I haven't got a crystal ball. Um, we can see that it's reversible. So having said long term, we can see it can be stopped. China is now concerned about being reseeded by Europe. So we are very close. It's a wonderful thing that we're very close. But at the moment, we need to be apart in order to stay together, if that makes any sense. Uh, so really, we're now looking at the long term. I wouldn't put a date on it, but don't expect this to finish early. Are we effectively waiting until the vaccine can be developed and distributed worldwide? No, it wouldn't be appropriate to be waiting. It wouldn't be wise. We have to t use the old public health methods, the, the finding every case, mm isolating everybody who's ill, finding everybody who's been exposed, uh, quarantining those people, following them, ensuring the health system is really well supported, ensuring that those who are sick get to care, and ensuring that the levels of hygiene in every household, every level of personal hygiene, the hand washing, not touching your mouth, nose and eyes, ensuring all those things happen all the time. It's not easy. Most of us are good at staying <laughs> staying well scrubbed for about a day, but 
we really do have to change, particularly the environmental hygiene. New Zealand is pretty pristine, so you've got an advantage there. Here in the Southern Hemisphere, of course, we're heading into winter and our traditional flu season. How is that likely to impact COVID-19? So COVID-19 is not flu. And there's been this idea floating around the place that somehow once it gets warmer, it's going to disappear. And yet Australia's got a thousand cases. You know, they've got a big outbreak. They're in the top 20 in the world. So if it wasn't, um, if it, if it wasn't a summer uh, virus, they wouldn't be having nearly that level of, of, of spread. And we're seeing it in other warm countries like Malaysia, Thailand. So it doesn't seem to be a virus that, that's made uncomfortable by being in warm areas. Mm. Um, and flu behaves in a very different way. But that is one of the concerns people were initially thinking of it as flu. It's not. Dr Margaret Harris from the World Health Organization. These are extraordinary times for all of us. And at TVNZ, we now have strict controls on who can access our studio. For the next wee while, a lot of our interviews are going to be conducted remotely on Q&A, and many will have to be on Skype, just like that one from France. So please bear with us if the picture quality on some of those interviews gets a bit Skypey and jerky. Coming up on Q&A, how are the big Kiwi banks responding to COVID-19? And what will it mean for mortgage holders? And how quickly could scientists develop a coronavirus vaccine? A Kiwi vaccinologist joins us next. Hawke Mayanor, welcome back to Q&A. The race to prepare and test a COVID-19 vaccine is already well underway, but there have been conflicting reports as to how long it will take for a vaccine to be prepared. Dr Helen Petousas-Harris is an Associate Professor at Auckland University and the Director of the WHO's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety. Tēnā koe. Welcome morning. to Q&A. So what is involved in making a vaccine for COVID-19? Well, I guess the first thing that you needed to know was what was causing the disease, which we, we know, you needed the genome. And once you have that, um, the, the approaches can be uh, so diverse. We've got uh, approaches that we you know, currently use for the vaccines we have, very familiar. But we're probably going to see um, what emerges, the most likely candidates are going to be with some of the new approaches and um, for a whole number of reasons, which is essentially almost dialing a vaccine. What you're saying is that we actually have multiple efforts to make a vaccine underway at the moment. There are about 35, right now, there's about 35 um, candidates. Right. And quite a number of those are ready to go into humans. One already has, and then several others are imminent. Uh, and they're not all the same type of vaccine. How are they different? So the one that's just gone into people um, is called an, an RNA vaccine, which is, um, we, we don't have any that we're using returnly yet. There are DNA vaccines, there are viral template vaccines, this is the new ones, as opposed to our more pedestrian ones, which are also out there um, with candidates. What are the benefits of some of these newer vaccines? Well, well the speed in which you can develop them, and also um, something like an RNA vaccine doesn't require you to grow bugs um, on a large scale, which of course is, um, you know, needs a lot of control, etc., and can p potentially p be produced much more quickly. And we're going to be really wanting to yeah, make this, a lot of it fast, right? Question, yeah. isn't it? How, how quickly? How quickly? So I think people can get confused between actually having a candidate, and and we had a candidate in 45 days to go into a human. So that's 
incredible. Um, but that candidate has to be tested and it, it goes through phases of testing um, to make sure it's safe and then to make sure that it's effective. Is there any way of speeding that up? Yes, yes, yes. So. Um, Normally these things get staggered over a period of several years, but you can you can bring that forward. You can overlap some of the phases that, that you're doing, so you can you can potentially begin getting an, the next one underway while you're still completing. You can use things like, and we've, we've perhaps heard that in the news too, is the idea of human challenge studies, where you actually challenge people with with a coronavirus. What is the best possible scenario then? The best case scenario, when might we have a vaccine? Well, we're hearing 12 to 18 months, and that, that seems to be fairly consistent. So you might have something, say you've got something slightly before that, uh, it doesn't mean that we're suddenly going to be able to start deploying it wild, widely. So we're going to have to, you know, where is this going to be first deployed? Is the How do they decide that? Well, I think, you know, it, there's going to be, let's assume several. So there's going to be more than one vaccine. Um, if, it was, if, if it was made by, say, a country like India, who've got incredible biotech, they supply a lot of the world's vaccines, but they've got their own population. So, you know, if, if, if you were into you, you'd probably want to give it to your own population first. Um, other scenarios are more collaborative and they might look at the, um, it would be healthcare workers probably first, but also thinking about those, some of those African countries perhaps, who is not managing this situation, where are the most deaths going to be occurring? Is it effectively going to come down to who is the highest bidder? I don't think so. Well, at least not with a lot of these vaccines because there'll be agreements built in um, to make sure that it doesn't matter what your ability to pay that you will have access to this vaccine. And who will own the vaccines? Good question. Um, I think because a lot of them are coming out of public money, um, philanthropic money, etc. So I'm not sure how that works, but I've certainly seen um, that the partnerships um, have occurred between big pharma, small biotech, philanthropy. Are there any New Zealand companies involved? Not to the best of my knowledge, but that, that doesn't mean there isn't. It's interesting, though, that you mentioned the smaller biotech companies. I mean, we effectively have startups mm. in this space, mm -hmm. whereas in the past it was completely dominated by the big pharma companies. That was our problem. That was one of our, our problems. Um, not necessarily because they were, they were big pharma, but mm. because of the model. I mean, a vaccine would take, say, 10 years, and um, it, it costs, we we're talking about billions to bring it to market, and that's big money to, to lose if it doesn't work out. So that was a real barrier. But also the technologies uh, were a barrier as well. So those have been broken down, um, particularly because of a, a, an organisation called CEPI, which is the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, and started up just uh, about three years ago and has been investing in sort of technologies that might help us mm. rustle up a vaccine really fast and breaking down those barriers. So they're actually backing one, for example, to help one of the things they're doing is help um, pave the way for manufacturing on a, a you know, on bulk scale. On a massive scale. Because that too is a, in a, a huge investment. So also in the technologies, also bringing some of those small biotech together with bigger, bigger companies right. as well. In the time that it will take to develop and distribute vaccines, the 12 to 18 months, is there a possibility the virus could mutate? Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it does, it, it does mutate. Um, but I also understand that the coronaviruses in that respect are relatively stable. I guess um, the way we make, you know, developing these vaccines, um, changes can be... Can be um, Introduced? Absolutely, but I, I guess ultimately we, yeah. we could have something like a flu vaccine where you, where you change it once you've established your model and that it works. Right.
Yeah, right. That, Safety's that, going to be the first thing, though. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. Okay, so, so we're looking at, at 12 to 18 months. In the meantime, what happens if you get COVID-19? Are you immune? Most likely, yeah. Yeah, I think the general consensus is that you're most likely immune. Okay, but we don't know that for sure at this stage. Not for absolute sure, or for how long, but um, yeah. it's the general, yeah, it's the way it usually goes with these types of infections. We heard from the WHO's uh, Dr Margaret Harris uh, a few minutes ago with regards flu season in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. Is that going to be a double whammy for us? Yeah, and that, that's a real concern because, you know, flu season um, put every year puts a burden on our, our health system. So if, if we can do anything to minimise that this year, we, you know, we need to do that. Uh, you are an expert in vaccine safety. I can imagine from time to time you have some interesting correspondence. <laughs> I just I wondered if you if you have been continuing to hear from people who are opposed to mass vaccinations during this period. It's been deathly quiet on that front. It's interesting. Thank you very much for your time, Associate Welcome. Professor Helen Petusis Harris. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post your comments on our Facebook page or email us at Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Our panel will be here shortly. But next, what can banks do to help Kiwi businesses and mortgage holders? Kiwi Bank's CEO is with us after the break. And pandemics, financial meltdowns and world wars, we've seen them all. So how does this crisis compare? And are New Zealanders equipped to get through? I think in many ways the response of the community during the First World War, during the flu of 1918, was not very different from what we're seeing now, from what we saw in Christchurch. People do come together. Kia ora e te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. The OCR has been cut to a record low and the Reserve Bank has indicated it would consider quantitative easing as a response to COVID-19. But how much will that help mortgage holders and businesses affected by the economic crisis? What can our big banks do to help? Kiwi Bank Chief Executive Steve Yurkovich, tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. How worried are you? Oh look, I think it's a time for cool heads and warm hearts. So, you know, you put in plans in, uh, in place to make sure that you you know, doing and controlling what you can control. So like all of us, you know, I think we've all got different concerns and different levels of anxiety, but um, for us, you know, I think we're well prepared, we're well capitalised, so we've just got to work with what's in front of us. From an economic perspective, how do you assess the government's response so far? Oh, look, I think it's bold. And for me, what the real challenge is in these situations, Jack, is that you're making decisions with imperfect information. Look, you've got to move fast, I think, and you've got to be bold. And in retrospect, maybe in a few years we'll look back and say, oh, we should have done more of this or more of that. But actually, now's not the time to sit on, a, you know, sit back and not make things happen. Do you think perhaps the government could have moved a little quicker? Look, really tough to say that. I think they've moved well at the moment and they're making strong moves. You heard earlier from Grant that there'll be more moves to come in the coming days. I think that's the most important thing, which is let's focus on, on keeping things moving. OK, we, we will talk about uh, some of the future plans in a moment. How do you assess the Reserve Bank's response so far? Oh, look, I think it's been bold. Um, if you look globally, you know, we're really on the front foot. I think there's more to come. Uh, I think as businesses get into tougher times, the Reserve Bank and Treasury are going to have to step in. Uh, and support the banks to support customers. Mm. I think it's really important that the system keeps working. Are you getting a lot of calls from businesses and mortgage holders? Uh, not a lot. Uh, people starting to think about how they might be impacted rather than really impacted at the moment. Not to say some customers won't be worried, of course they are. Look, the thing I want to emphasise, the most important thing right across the banking industry is make sure you get in touch. This is not a time to lean back and, and wait for things to happen. Get on the front foot and talk to your bank. What sort of help can you offer Kiwis? Look, in the past, I mean, one of the things I'd say is people have been quite critical of bank profits and 
those sorts of things, now's the time for us to step up. And I'm confident that the industry will step up. You know, we have to put money aside for a rainy day. If you think about all the Reserve Bank rules, now's a rainy day and we're going to have to step up. OK, what does stepping up mean? Yeah, look, I think it depends on your circumstances. It might look like working capital, so, you know, you've got enough money to pay the bills and pay your invoices. It might look like a loan holiday or some sort of break on repayments. For some people, they might want to go to interest only, so, you know, not paying back the principal. All those things have got to be options on the table. Uh, are, are mortgage holidays something you are expecting to... Uh issue plenty of? Yeah, well, I think so. I think this is realistic, which is actually I need to put some things on hold for a while. And so what can I put on hold? So let's do that. Okay. I mean, how does that actually work for people who are concerned about paying well, their mortgage? Well, like I said, the most important thing is that they get in, in touch with the bank. There's not one size that fits all. You know, everyone's circumstances will vary. So get in touch with the bank, talk to them about the circumstances you're in, and then we can work with you. Are they available for everyone? Uh, no, it'll depend on your circumstances. I mean, one of the things we're going to have to do is just make sure that we're supporting the right people uh, and focusing on the right solutions. Does a mortgage holiday make your mortgage more expensive in the long run? Well, I think it's going to depend on the circumstances. The short answer is usually yes, uh, but these are extraordinary times. And, you know, there is no free money in the world, um, but we're going to have to think about things differently. Do you expect lending rates are going to remain low for years? Uh, yeah, I do. I think this is going to be an, a number of year uh, slowdown slash recession. So, look, I'd expect them to be low. Even before these events, interest rates look like they're going to be low for a long, long time. So this is, you know, this is an unprecedented time. How is this crisis likely to affect the rural sector? Well, I think one of the things you can think about is that, you know, the, the really big businesses that are supporting the world's real needs, like food, for instance, Fonterra, people are still going to need to eat. So actually they may be coming into a sweet spot. As long as we can move stuff around the world, then people uh, will support those businesses. Do you think agriculture is going to be one of the more resilient parts of our economy? Yeah, well, I do. And it has always been the backbone of New Zealand. So, you know, you're in a situation where we can, you know, feed ourselves. I think one of the things I'd say is, you know, two of the really big businesses in New Zealand are cooperative, so foodstuffs and Fonterra, owned by New Zealand for New Zealand. Uh, so all of those can handle the pressure if we can all be a bit more measured in the way that we deal with them. We've seen more than $5 billion in wage subsidies offered to businesses. Those are being uh, accessed already. What has to come next? Look, my view is um, the only way you can support businesses is by stimulating the banks to look after these customers. There's no way a government agency can deal with the hundreds of thousands of businesses, but the banks are dealing with them every day. My personal view is we need to get some support out to those customers as fast as we can. That could, like, that could look like something in Australia in terms of you know, what the banks have been working on there. Or secondly, it might look like the Reserve Bank or Treasury buying assets from banks that have been linked to customers. Right, so effectively guaranteeing loans. Yeah, so imagine I'm a small business, I need some money from the bank, I go to my bank and borrow it. Those loans are bundled up and sold to Treasury. Uh, they're an asset that the government in New Zealand owns, but they keep businesses running so that when you get out the other side of these things, and let's remember, you know, we've been through world wars, depressions, global financial crisis, it's a cycle. Mm. No one knows how long, but it is a cycle. And good times never last as long as people think, and neither do bad times, in mm. my view. We heard from the Finance Minister, Grant Robertson, referencing the Australian model as well. From a business perspective, how would that work? Um, so in Australia, what you've seen with the big banks there, and across all the banks, actually, is decide to go on six-month holiday repayments. So um, giving um, a break to people about having to repay their debts during that time or supporting them with working capital services. So what it essentially means is you can put the brakes on things for six months, uh, and then we'll see how things go from there. Well, what, what is your assessment at this stage for how long we are likely to be in this crisis? At what point will we return to the previous normal? Uh, 
It's a great question. Look, I mean, we're planning much shorter term than that. Like uh, the minister said, we've got to plan for the long term and got to be around for the long term. But at the moment, I would, you know, we're not planning for weeks, we're planning for months. Has the Reserve Bank's stance on capital requirement been emboldened by, <laughs> by, yeah. by the events of the last few weeks? Yeah, I mean, I think the governor would argue that, you know, you need to be prepared. And I think in this example, he talked about a one in 200 year event. Uh, I'm not a historian, so I can't tell you whether in the last couple of hundred years something like this mm. has happened, but it is actually about money aside for a rainy day, as I said, and that day has come. I mean, the big banks had been preparing for those stronger capital requirements. Has that put you in a stronger position? Uh, yeah, well, it had. I mean, all of us were ahead of the, measure, um, you know, the measures anyway, so you, we are well capitalised compared to a lot of banks around the world. Mm. Um, it was more really around the progress, Jack, so you know, what we were going to have to step up over the seven-year period. Um, pushing that back does assist. Um, because at the end of the day, that capital will need to be deployed to businesses and customers. When you look across the aisle to your Australian-owned competitors, can New Zealanders trust the big banks to have their back? Yeah, I mean, they are long-term businesses. You know, for as long as New Zealand's been around, there's been banks operating through the ups and downs of the economy. Uh, banks are built on taking a long-term view. As I said, some people have been critical about, has there been too much short-termism? Perhaps there has. Now's a chance for us to really show that we are going to be around you know, when times are tough. Do you think your competitors share, share your position? Look, I mean, yeah, this is not a competitive situation. You know, we are all in it together. I know that sounds uh, like something that maybe is more suited to the social sort of environment, but actually the system works well when the system is together uh, and all banks have got the same perspective. So I'm absolutely confident that every chief executive of every bank is thinking exactly the same way. You know, we're on calls through the New Zealand Bankers Association. I haven't heard one comment that hasn't been exactly aligned to. We're all in it together. Kiwi Bank CEO Steve Yurkovich. Thanks for your time. After the break, our panel does its best to digest a crazy week. Ephesel Collins and Fran O'Sullivan with their take on New Zealand's response to COVID-19. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A and good morning to NZME Head of Business, Fran O'Sullivan and Auckland Councillor Ephesel Collins, our panel this morning. Kia ora kōrua. Um, I want to begin with the public health response, an unprecedented address from the ninth floor of the Beehive from the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern yesterday. Fran, are we being strict enough? Look, I don't think so, and I, and I think we've been let down by New Zealanders. Uh, young people who are out around the bars, they're not self-isolating or social distancing or physical distancing, as we heard this morning. Mm. And um, even last week, with what was happening with St Pat's um, celebrations down in Otago, I mean, these kids have to grow up, and I say kids because they're behaving like them. But the other thing at the border, we if you compare to what's happening in China now, mm. when people are coming into the country, they're going through a range of tests through they're having their temperature taken they get taken to one side they you know they get tested they go into quarantine places they don't come straight into the community and I would say um, yes lovely to bring everyone back and we should because they're our countrymen but I also think they've been in the world at a time when the virus is actually now mm. quite rife and I think we need to step up quarantine and not simply self-isolate. Look I know there will be people who watch this who say well you're not public health experts you're not epidemiologists but it's important to point out that I there go is through some... the border and I know what happens. And there, and there is mm. some disagreement within mm. the public health community I mean, Professor Michael Baker says now is the time for us to be closing businesses and closing schools. Ephesa, what do you think? I think the government's done well at managing this process. We've seen a, a rating system, a, a framework of, of what people can expect. But I think there is a bit of arrogance in the community with the very things that Fran was referring to. That's a level of arrogance and a, a nonchalant attitude that 
doesn't belong anymore. Look, we've had churches called off. The, the Mormons, the Catholics have called off masses. And even in South Auckland, a, a lot of smaller churches are calling off because everyone mm. wants to take the position that we want to do better for everybody. We're in this together. And so they're happy to call off services. So I think we've got to take that attitude. Some people are, are saying, well, what we should personally live as if we're at the framework part four, even though we're at the reduced level now, because that gives us a, an introduction as to into what that life might look like. See, it's interesting that you say the reduced level, isn't it? Mm. Because we have two potential cases of community spread. And if people think, oh, well, look, we're only at level two out of level four, then perhaps that mm. inadvertently encourages more lax behaviour, Fran? Yeah, it could do. And But what's really interesting, when the Prime Minister announced those various levels, um, and I looked through it and I thought, when actually Auckland Council is already implementing mm -hmm. some of the stuff at level mm -hmm. three, you know, closing libraries, all of that. So people are making decisions at local government level and also at the university in Canterbury where the university students have actually called for it to be closed mm -hmm. and them to go and do online learning. So. You know, people are making choices that actually run ahead of the government a bit in some areas, but government has a job to keep confidence so that we don't all just go, well, frankly, mm. you know, mental health issues, all of that. I mean, it's, it's, you can't just sort of go straight into it. It takes mm. a while. It takes a while to adjust. I think, you know, most major economies... Um, you know, when they look back, they say, oh, you didn't move fast enough. But maybe you couldn't. Maybe it's a question of psychologically understanding what you're dealing with. And this is sort of a once in a century, we hope, type of environment that we're in. Afisu, are your constituents feeling the economic impact of this year? Yeah, I think the panic buying began slowly uh, with, with poorer, more vulnerable communities. But I think when you watch on, you start to think, well, everyone else is doing it. Maybe I should join in. The challenge, though, for many of our community is that they don't have a lot of income anyway and so you know you, you're not going to take your $100 if that of shopping and be able to increase it at, at those mm -hmm. rates so yeah th there's been some shift there's definitely a, a, an increase in levels of anxiety I tweeted about how I hugged a person outside our local fresh choice who's just can't understand what's going on and she was after formula and usually she tries to buy one or two and she's restricted to one so I think there's a, a lift in the level of anxiety mm. but we've got to find the, the places that will provide the, the social support that's necessary. Fran what have you made of the finance minister's response this week that 12.1 billion dollar package the 900 million dollar loan function for Air New Zealand has he focused on the right areas? Well, I think it's a very much a phased process, and he made that clear today. And obviously, you know, they're going off. He's going to be in discussions with the bankers, um, um, Steve Yurkovich and others, this weekend. And it sounds very much like what they're going to do is mirror similar types of, um, I guess, uh, ways of helping business and also mortgage holders that are coming out of, out of Australia. And don't forget also, Australian government announced a big package, but today they're announcing more. So they'll be up to Australian $189 mm -hmm. billion dollars, um, after today's announcements. And then they think this is another $66 billion to come today in various policies, and then more to come later. It sounds like the budgets will be put back to later in the year. So it's step by step, and you've got to get the framework together. You can't just dial it up like that. Mm. So I think they're probably running about as fast as they can, you know, putting, putting um, some loans behind uh, the national carrier, that type of thing. 
And I think that's a good thing because if they want to swap to um, equity later and there's been lots of grizzles in the finance and mm. investment community, they can do that later on and they'll get a deeply discounted package at that time. I mean, they're you know, pretty strong interest rates being required right now, but that just gives them the ability to keep operating now and you know, the rest can come later. I mean, the, the wage subsidies are being mm. picked up quickly, I mean, that is an yeah, enormous sum of money to be injecting. I mean, that only lasts 12 weeks though, right? Yeah, and yeah. and for, for, say, retailers yes. whose major expense is a lease rather than, rather than wages. Yeah, look, I think it's going to require in business everybody to give a bit. And, mm. you know, rather, than, I mean, we saw this at the time of um, the GFC, like, mm. you know, a lot of small business went, just went out in mm. Auckland and um, you had really, retrospect quite stupid landlords who didn't just meet the market and didn't just say I'm going to give you you know 40% off your rent or mm. lease as it is commercial lease for the time being knowing that you'll be there when it comes out so you had vacant tenancies all around town mm. and I think this is which is in no one's interest well yeah. it's not and you've got to you know there might be some way those restaurants will ultimately come mm. back but no one's going to be going into them if they you know mm. go out of business yeah. Mm. Well, financially, you want to support businesses. So there's been a whole emphasis on small, medium enterprise, which people are really happy with. Shamubil Yakib came out, and he's really happy about it. So when you're pleasing people like him, it's great. But look, beneficiaries are going to get $25 increases. There's an increase in the winter payment packages. There's a woman on national radio who said, I can afford to maybe even have mm. ice cream in my shopping. The fact is that that money is going to find itself back into local economy. That's what we want. We, we know that a lot of our more vulnerable communities have struggled and this is an excellent step in ensuring that they've got some financial backing through this period. From a public health perspective, Efeso, you know, when we think of Māori and Pacifica communities, often they are overrepresented in, over in negative health statistics. How do we mitigate that additional risk at the moment? Yeah, well, that's a conversation we're having at the moment. That's why churches have decided they're not going to go ahead. And you know, this might be representative of the stress test that will be on our health system at some stage because we already know that Middlemore Hospital was challenged, had to create a measles ward when the measles epidemic was out mm. and then went overseas. So I think for, as far as health is concerned, we're going to have to learn to distance, physically distance ourselves and that's going to be in church. But we're concerned because so many, you know, Māori and Pacific make up 60% of overcrowded houses in New Zealand. That means that if there's going to be community transference of, of coronavirus, it's probably going to affect our people the most. Is that message getting through? I think it's slowly getting through. I think our concerns at the moment are, do we have enough food? And so as people start to relax and calm down, they realise, OK, there's not going to be a shortage of food mm. supply, but we've got to work out ways to stay home. Is, is there someone else's place mm. where we can sleep so that we've, we're sharing uh, the facilities better? But that's got, it's, the message is getting through. The challenge is the reality means mm. you can't change your life too much if there's 10 of you in a two or three bedroom house. Um, Fran, we heard from Steve Yurkovich, the CEO of Kiwi Bank, who says now is the time for the big banks to step up, and he believes they will. Do you think New Zealanders should uh, share his confidence? Yes, I, I, do, I do, because at the big end of town, people do have to step up, and the banks are certainly there. I mean, we have been through these cycles before, and when you've been around for a while, you <laughs> see a few of these. And, um, you know, if you go back to the 1980s, when um, interest rates were up mm. around 26%, which seems ursurous now, looking back, but what banks did at the time was they 
they they capitalise the interest. And okay, you know, if you're young, you've got years ahead of you yeah. on a 30-year mortgage, and it's, you just have to suck it up. But you know, but today when those interest rates are quite a lot less, or mm. you're talking about getting a um, principal, um, you know, kind of holiday as well. And maybe for a few months. I mean, if you, you can take it over a long period of time, mm. and you've got to accept that there will be the cycles that he talked about. I think one thing, though, I did, did want to talk about, and both both Grant and also um, uh, Steve focused on it, and that is that there does need to be something happening at the big end of town. And if I read or misread uh, what Grant was saying, it did sound as if they were considering um, some sorts of lines of credit, you know, particularly around infrastructure, that type of thing, mm. to make sure big business actually gets on and does other stuff that creates employment and helps mm. to get the growth back in. Finally, a question for you both. Is now the time for politicking? National leader Simon Bridges came under a fair bit of criticism after his response to the government's emergency budget package. I wonder what you think is the role of the opposition at the moment, Fisa? Yeah, I think the role of the opposition is to keep the government to account, but do it in a positive way. I wonder if the answer here is, you know, in, in wartime we used to have an expanded mm. cabinet, and it might take the sting out of what the National Party's uh, strategy is at the moment by including them in some of these briefings and having a cabinet that includes everybody, because mm. I think the nation isn't after politics. What we're after is courageous leadership and some hope and courage so that people feel like we're in this together. Mm -hmm. And playing politics, is, this is not the time for that. And I think Simon Bridges made a poor call on that. Fran? Yeah, he was graceless um, earlier in the week and such a shame, really. And you could see the looks on his colleagues who, who were just wanting to you know, go through the floor mm. while, while he just didn't get the tonality right. Um, I agree. I think there needs to be a, some more unity, postpone the election. And, mm. and also there's a bit of wisdom. I mean, the opposition has been a government. It has dealt with crises. There's going to come a point when... Jacinda Ardern and Grant are going to get awfully tired carrying all this burden on, on their own shoulders and I think they need to spread it a bit and also I've talked before about wanting a task force there I mean I was watching earlier this morning um, President Trump and you know he normally hogs the camera too but um, he was sort of standing to one mm. side while six various people who all had various you know tasks Rolls. to do yeah. ran through it and I think we need to see that because yeah. I don't know where do we get our ventilators from? Are we negotiating with China to get more masks, more sanitizer, more what? Uh, and there should be somebody who does supply chain who could tell us about that. doesn't have to be Jacinda Ardern. And as you know, this is a marathon, not a sprint, as exactly. you keep saying. <laughs> and Fran, tēnā kōrua. Thanks for your time. Thank you. After the break on Q&A, how resilient is New Zealand? A look back in history to when we faced wars, pandemics and financial crises and survived. Some hopeful messages for us all in the story after the break. These are extraordinary times, but in a sense, this isn't completely uncharted territory for Aotearoa. Last century, the country weathered two major world wars, the Spanish flu and several economic meltdowns. So what did we learn? Reporter Fena Owen spoke to an historian and a psychologist. I think people of that generation have seen big emergencies before. I mean, these, these are the people now who were children or teenagers during the Second World War. That was a period of community mobilisation, if you like, that extended over six years, and it was massive. 
At Victoria University, Dr Jim McAloon specialises in New Zealand economic and government history and is interested in how we're dealing with the current global upheaval compared with past crises. If you think of the Spanish flu, the big difference between that and COVID-19 is that the flu came right at the end of the First World War. Fortunately, we're not in that situation. We haven't just got through a world war. I think in many ways the response of the community during the First World War, during the flu of 1918, was not very different from what we're seeing now, from what we saw in Christchurch in 2011. People do come together. This is clinical psychologist Dr Dougal Sutherland who tells us Kiwis these days are better at managing the mental stress of global shocks. We simply didn't know very much in the old days. To be honest I think people are better equipped than they were 20 or 30 years ago uh, in terms of psychological tools. There were no supermarkets during the world wars. Have we lost the plot when it comes to panic buying? There were some episodes of panic buying at the beginning of the First World War as people wondered what it all meant. Then things settled down. But the point about wartime economics, and this is especially true in the Second World War, is that the government at that time took very firm steps to stop panic buying, and that was called rationing. We know certainly that these type of major events can have a triggering effect for people who already have a history of anxiety or depression. Um, and we've seen that throughout, you know, the last 20 or 30 years. The earthquakes, 9-11, anything like that, we often see after that a surge of people seeking help from mental health support. But those mental issues could be delayed. Anecdotally, many New Zealanders were upbeat at the very start of the world wars. I see a similar thing going on here. There's lots of chatter and talk and there's anxious excitement, perhaps, or anxious anticipation, maybe. And there's adrenaline associated with that. So people feel active and alive and involved a bit. And, you know, we're all in this together. My worry is when that sort of buzz comes off and then we're faced with the stark reality of are people unwell, have people died, I don't have a job anymore. Dr Sutherland and his peers are concerned about how people manage the mental stress of self-isolating. I think we should be considering what will rates of domestic violence be like. As people are cooped up together, they're tired, they're worried about things. What we do know is that to help reduce that is actually if we help people take the mindset of I'm quarantining myself for actually the good and the help of other people. Words are powerful in times like this, says Dr Sutherland, and he prefers the term quarantine. So you don't like the word isolation? I don't like the word isolation, nor the term social distancing. We don't want there to be distance in our social relations. Sure, we might have to be physically distant. We've been very clear, uh, an initial response, but a very, very significant one. I think one thing this crisis has done is demonstrated that nation states do still have some power. But will we also have to adjust to a different world order? The death of globalisation has been prophesied a few times in, in the last uh, decade or two. I don't think it will come to an end. I think perhaps you will see governments taking slightly stronger control of social and economic policy. Certainly we've seen this in the Finance Minister's package this week. He has taken steps which he judges to be in the best interests of New Zealand. 
After decades of examining our response to global crises, Dr McAloon is heartened at the resilience New Zealanders continue to show during tough times. It's a temporary thing and I think it's important to remember that every crisis that we've had in the last century has been temporary. We're all in this together and I think there's some comfort in going, you know what, it's okay, we're all in this together. Nobody knows, but nobody knows, so that's okay. So I think just trying to live in the moment, just do each day by each day rather than worrying too much about the future. Fena Owen with that report. Kuomatu, that is us for Q&A this week. Thanks for joining us. And nā mihi ki karere. Thanks for your contributions. Marae is next. The One News team will keep you up to speed with all the day's developments at onenews.co.nz and the One News hour at six. I'm going to clean up the desk for them now. In the meantime, take care, wash your hands. We'll see you next Sunday at nine o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.